Our text is the Gospel lesson from Matthew 25, which was just read, the famous passage of the sheep and the goats. There is also in existence a rewritten alternative version of this parable, which exists in the heads of many evangelical Christians. This uh, rewritten alternative goes like this. Jesus assembled all the segments of the church before his glorious throne for the final judgment. And eternal destinies were determined according to one criterion. Namely, whether the Christians in question had fed the hungry or given drink to the thirsty and welcomed strangers, clothed the naked and visited the sick and imprisoned. Those who had done so entered heavenly bliss. Those who did not went away into the eternal fire. And every segment of the church was invited to, summoned, to appear before the throne. And when the Reformed Church appeared before the king, he asked them for an account of their deeds of mercy toward the least of these. And they answered saying, Lord, you know that visiting prisoners and ministering to the poor are not among our spiritual gifts. Our doctrine, however, is impeccable. And surely, Lord, you know that we are saved by faith and not by works. Look with mercy, then, on our lack of concern for the poor. Save us by faith in your righteousness alone. And in this version of the parable, this fictional version of the parable, Jesus answers and says, you alone have spoken truly. I have not seen such insight among all the tribes of Christendom. You shall enter the kingdom prepared for the elect before the foundation of the world by faith alone. And if you could throw in an occasional act of charity for the poor along the way, that would be really good. Now, the manuscript evidence, if you will, the manuscript evidence for this alternative reading of the text is not hard to come by. This or something like it exists in the heads of a good many of us in this room. This is the version of the parable we're working off of. And we, as we read it, we reread it something like I just reread it. Which is essentially to eviscerate it. Now, of course, the alternative version, to be fair, it raises some legitimate concerns, does it not? So let's state this clearly for the record. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. The scriptures are emphatic about that, as is the whole Reformed confessional tradition. But remember, the parables are not trying to say everything in a balanced, proportional way. You know, the parables are not Jesus trying to say, now let me say everything that could be said about this subject so that we see it all. He's trying to highlight certain things, and so you have to allow a text like this to speak its unnerving truth to us. 
In fact, it's, it's the fact that this text is so obviously unnerving that we rewrite it in our heads the way I just did. So we're going to look at the text. Six headings. They're there on your insert. The, the, the first one is the king. The second one is the least of these. The third is the solidarity. Solidarity. The fourth is the judgment. The fifth is the surprise. And sixth is the point. The point. So it's the king, the least of these, the solidarity, the judgment, the surprise, and the point. First, then, the king. Today is, you may have noticed this in the liturgy, today is Christ the King Sunday. It's actually the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent. It's the beginning of a new church year. And the church always ends the year with the acclamation that Christ is King, that He's ruler and Lord over all. And this text, this gospel lesson from Matthew 25, is a traditional reading for this day. Now that's important. Because the church is saying this text reminds us that the sovereign kingship of Christ over all things, His Lordship culminates in this judgment. It culminates in this exacting judgment. Now we celebrate the kingship of Christ. In the Reformed tradition, it's one of the central visions of God. God is sovereign, free king. God is king over creation. He's sovereign in providence. He's sovereign over human salvation. But we rarely extend that theme to his sovereign role in the coming judgment. If someone were to say to you, what is a wondrous text about the kingship of Jesus Christ, you would probably not say, oh, the, the, the story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. But that's precisely what the church has done for centuries. And so for that reason alone, this is a very helpful text for us. Very salutary. Because it reminds us if we confess that Christ is king, it means we confess that we will stand before this throne and be judged by this criteria. Notice in the text, and it's, it would really be shocking in his context, in verse 31 it indicates that Jesus, the Son of Man, He comes in glory as king. The angels are His attendants. And the throne is His glorious throne. He has taken the place of Yahweh around His throne with His attendants in the Old Testament. And in verse 32, you'll note that since He's the King and He's also a shepherd, He separates the people one from another. Just like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so the nations are gathered, you'll see there, but people are separated. This is a judgment on individuals as individuals. It's not a judgment on nations as nations. Nations are gathered, but people are separated. The sheep are placed on the right, the place of honor. The goats on the left, which here is the place of disgrace. So that's the king, the second point which is crucial for understanding the text, is the least of these. 
those to whom these acts of charity are done or those to, for whom they're omitted are called the least of these my brothers. Verse 45 simply calls them, my brother, uh, calls them the least of these and omits my brothers. But surely the my brothers part is implied. You may have noticed that the second half of the story, the part about the goats, is sort of compressed for economy. So the question is this. Who are the least of these my brothers? Now you might think this is an obvious question, but it actually isn't. Currently the dominant view is that this refers to any human being in need. And thus Jesus is teaching that at the judgment, what will be in view is our response to human need, period. Now, that is a correct idea with plenty of biblical support. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. I think it teaches just that. But I don't think that's the point of this text. Here, the least of these who are called my brothers are surely Christians in need. In the words of Galatians, we're to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of the faith. There's a couple reasons why the least of these, my brothers, are believers here. First, in Jesus' teaching ministry, but especially in Matthew's Gospel, where this comes from, brothers is always a term which refers to disciples. Who is my mother and my brother? Whoever does the will of God, that one is my mother and my brother. So Jesus' brothers are those he's called into community, into the, into the messianic community of the church. Secondly, the, the phrase here, the least of these, this reflects Jesus' concern throughout the gospel for what he calls his little ones. The least of these is actually a superlative form of little ones in Matthew's gospel. So, for example, in Matthew 18, Jesus says this. He's speaking of the children of the covenant, and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better to have a millstone around his neck. I tell you that. Uh, of, the, of these children, he says, do not despise one of these little ones for their angels in heaven behold the face of their father. The little ones are Jesus' children, his brothers. In Matthew 10, he says, whoever gives to even one of these little ones a cup of cold water, a text very much like this text, because he is a disciple, truly he will not lose his reward. So the least of these refers to the brethren, the brothers of Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do good to all men. It just means that's not what's being taught by this text. So this brings us to the third major point, solidarity, closeness, or togetherness. The text uh, shows that to show charity to the least of these is to show it to Jesus. To fail to show it is to fail to show it to Jesus. And so that implies that there's the closest kind of solidarity between Jesus and his body. There's this intense, 
intimate identification that Jesus has with his people. Especially the marginalized among his people. The poor and the imprisoned. The suffering, afflicted Christians around the world. Jesus identifies with them. It's that solidarity that's in view when the risen Christ says to to Saul in Acts chapter 9, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So this bond of solidarity is what drives our compassion here. It's easy for us to forget this. That it's Jesus who's presenting himself to us in the disguise, if you will, of our brethren. And that brings us to the judgment. Notice the sheep are called here in verse 34, blessed by my Father. Very strong word. Blessed means they're the recipients of God's good favor. They have God's benediction. They've received His grace. They have a relationship. They're blessed of the Father. They're sons. And they're called here to inherit a kingdom which is prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. Before the creation of the world. This is the New Testament language for election. So I do think it's reasonable in light of the whole Bible to see these people as the elect. Here they're just viewed from the perspective of their works. They've received God's good favor. They're inheriting a kingdom prepared for them. Nevertheless, the judgment that they're going to undergo here is in a very strict way according to works. It's according to works. The sheep gave food and drink to Jesus in his brothers. They welcomed him when he was a stranger. They clothed him when he was naked. They visited him when he was sick and in prison. The goats didn't do these things. And this is not a minor oversight. You know, it's not not as if Jesus says, I know you goats had different gifts. This is considered a grievous failure, which consigns one to the eternal fire in the text. So, to go back just a little bit and try and make this clearer, while we are not saved by our works, we will not be saved without them. We say this over and over here, but that's the key thing. We are not saved by works. We will not be saved without them, though. In fact, we will be damned without them. That's the key point here. Without holiness, and this is holiness, to visit widows and orphans in their distress, no one will see the Lord. So think of it this way. It's always hard to to come up with examples that work here, but... Say you have two sons in your house. And you say to them, if you do not clean up your rooms, you cannot come to the dinner table and eat. Right? Typical thing, parents do this, right? Now, strictly speaking, it's not the cleaning of their rooms which gives them a right to access your dinner table. It's the fact that they're sons in your house. That's the ultimate ground of their right to eat. That corresponds to justification by faith alone. Your children are justified by faith alone. They're sons because of your goodness and mercy. They're in the house. They have a legal title, if you will, to the table. 
But if they're really justified, in every instance, they're going to show, show it by renovation, by renewal, by sanctification, by good works. So you walk into your first son's room, and, you know, as sons are wont to do, he has cleaned the room. In itself, his cleaning job leaves a lot to be desired. But he's made an effort. Some stuff is picked up. And since he's your son, and he's freely justified, and if you will, he has some real but defective evidence of good works, you receive him and his defective works in your mercy, and you invite him to the table for dinner. That's what you do. I mean, the works are not the ground or the basis of his right to eat, but they're necessary. They're necessary evidence of true sonship. No clean room, no dinner. No clean room, no dinner. You don't get to say, hey, I'm a son, I'm in the house. I have a right to the dinner. You go into your second son's room, he's smoking something illegal. He's got headphones on, listening to some wretched music. The room's a shambles. You ask him why the room's not clean. He curses you out. He tells you to deal with it. He isn't invited to the table. You say, well, then you're not getting dinner. And if that was his consistent behavior, it would be evidence that he's never really been justified. That he's an illegitimate son. No clean room, no dinner. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. So the, so the reformed, if you will, the alternative parable that I told at the outset, it's only half right. If these works are not the basis of salvation, they are nonetheless absolutely necessary for salvation. I hope everyone's with me on that distinction. You, you, can be, you can be saved by faith alone, but works can still be necessary. No clean room, no dinner. No doing what Jesus says to do in Matthew 25. No eschatological dinner. No wedding feast. Because in, in this text, the absence of this kind of practical Aid, this kind of costly assistance to the suffering members of the body of Christ is a sign of rejecting Jesus himself. That's very key to get to understand what's going on in this parable. It's not like Jesus says, you know, I'd really like it if you could visit some prisoners. If you can't fit it in, I get it, you're saved by faith. In, in the, the way the parable functions, to refuse to visit prisoners and close the naked is a way of saying to Jesus Christ, I don't care about you. You mean nothing to me. If you're naked, if you're poor, if you're suffering, if you're afflicted, to, to, to fail to respond is to reject Jesus Christ because he appears to us in his members. This is why Christian compassion to the poor is so critical. It's not because Christianity is a nice religion that tries to get people to do good things for other people. Although it is that, of course, but lots of things are that. Showing this kind of aid is a way of receiving and showing that you have received Jesus himself. I mean, think of how revolutionary this is for the way you speak, the way you think, 
the way you pray, and the way you interact with one another. If you realize that Jesus Christ is presenting himself to you in this brother or that sister. So that brings us to the surprise. And it is one of the surprising features of this text that the sheep and the goats, they're both surprised at the end. They, they say, Lord, uh, when did we see you and do this? Or in the case of the goats, when did we see you and not do these, these things? Notice, they're, they're, they're not surprised at their fate. That's not what they're surprised at. They're surprised at the reason for their fate. I mean, they're told their fate, and then they're like, when did we do these things or not do them? When did we show Jesus charity, and when, and when didn't we? This is a, a, a literary device that I think is trying to drive home that whatever we do or don't do to the suffering brethren, we do or we do not do to Jesus. That's the purpose of the surprise here. So in a sense, Jesus is telling the story so that you will not be surprised at the judgment. So that we can prepare for this evaluation of our love for Christ. This is how the kingship, the sovereign kingship of Christ, ultimately manifests itself to the world in this scene. And that brings me to the last point, which I'm calling the point. Hopefully by now this is obvious. When we have said everything we can say about faith and works, the fact remains these works are required at the judgment. Whatever you want to say. And it's surely correct to say they're evidence that we're saved. They're not the cause of our salvation. That's fine. But notice also, the text tells us that when the king holds court, what he is going to examine what he's going to look at is not, it is not, at least from this perspective of this parable, it is not the motivation of your heart or your secret thoughts, though those things will be evaluated as well. But here, what's examined is open public evidence, a record of actions of charity. So think of it as a court. You have to submit exhibits. And on the basis of that evidence, the king renders a decision. Again, he doesn't say, look, the evidence is wanting, but I'm going to let you in on some other ground. The evidence has to be there. He renders a decision about our eternal destinies based on public open evidence. No clean room, no dinner. And so we need to edit that alternative parable that's floating around in our heads, don't we? We have to edit it. It should go something like this. The reform stood before the king and they said, Lord, we know that we're saved by grace, not on the basis of works. Yet we know that salvation being all of your grace means that salvation demands all from us. This is the key line which is often missing in our rewriting of these sort of texts. The fact that salvation is all of grace does not mean nothing is required of us. In fact, it means everything is required of us. 
We know that free righteousness, Lord, is always wrought out in lives of actual concrete righteousness. We know that you will judge our faith according to our works. We know that without providing evidence to your court, we will not be saved. No clean room, no dinner. And so we have labored to love you. To love you in your poor. To love you in your naked and your hungry and your imprisoned brethren. We have fed you in your hunger and visited you, welcomed you, clothed you. It's then that the king will say to us, as he does in this text, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That kingdom still is pure gift. And so in the meantime, we have this gracious notice. We stand under this crisis. Jesus gives us time, the time we need to visit him and to care for him. So let's use it wisely. It's always wonderful to look at this right before Advent because Advent is a preparatory season. It's not quite the same as Lent, but it is a time of reflection and of joyful repentance at a time of renewal. Go out to Jesus in his suffering ones because the coming king who's going to administer this judgment, he's already come. He's come incognito in the least of these. How are you treating him? Amen.